Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. John is uh, gone on vacation, so you got me flying solo today. I want to start off the show by talking about attorney James Shallow, Jim. He died uh, very recently at the age of 95. And Jim Shallow was renowned for being at the top of his game from the very beginning. He had a very long and distinguished career as a defense lawyer. I had the chance to meet him many times and hear him speak, watch him in court. I read books that he's written. Uh, I learned a lot from this man and had a great degree of uh, admiration for him. Um, There were times when I would go to see him speak and I would leave the presentation with a new sense of commitment to what we do as criminal defense lawyers. He was very inspirational, always creative, and really the embodiment of what uh, criminal defense really means. Now, this was a guy that spent um, his whole life living it uh, to the <laughs> to the highest level of activity, engagement, and honestly, just enjoying life. Um, he was a chain smoker. Uh, he had his last cigarette apparently the day before he died. And he didn't die from smoking. He died from COVID-19 at the age of 95. Um, he's defended every kind of case you could possibly imagine. And uh, just a nationally known figure for the things that he's done, the types of cases he would take, the type of uh, defense that he would provide for those who needed it most. Uh, unfortunately, his daughter, Robin passed away a couple years ago ahead of him and he made it to the ripe old age of 95 with and he was still engaged in law he's one of those guys that said he would never retire and he never did until he ultimately passed away but it makes me think about this profession the the very idea that one commits oneself to the defense of other people and how challenging that is and how very difficult it can be the whole process is difficult i, I it's i can't imagine how hard it would be to be a judge and to have to make those types of decisions and it's hard to be a prosecutor to manage with limited budgets, limited funding, limited resources. But those resources are, you know, generally greater than what's provided to the defense. And it's always what feels like an uphill battle in trying to make sure that our system works the way that it should. It oftentimes doesn't. And we see examples of that all the time. And to have that type of courage to um, keep this system strong, coming down to those individuals who are willing to take on that task is, is something that is very honorable. Now, I know that 
there are people that don't understand how or why we even have criminal defense lawyers in the system. You know, it's in the Constitution, of course, that someone is entitled to representation. And it's part of what we try to do to keep the government from having too much power over individual people. It's still kind of surprising to me that in this day and age, we don't have um, a better way of doing things. I know that I'm a private defense lawyer. I know that people pay me to do what I do. It's how I earn a living. It's how I pay my bills. But it seems like the kind of thing that the government really should do more to make sure that um, people are being represented effectively. And we spend a lot of money in a lot of areas, and this is one of them that, frankly, we just need to spend more because it goes to the heart of our system. It goes to the heart of whether we feel secure as a society. And what I mean by that is that if the easier it gets to wrongfully accuse somebody and wrongfully convict them because they're overwhelmed by an adversarial system, the less faith we have in the integrity of our society. And this goes both ways. One could say very easily, and people often do, that if we don't have the right resources, the right infrastructure to uh, prosecute cases, then we worry that crime will run out of control and that bad people will do bad things and bad people will do worse things and we'll have an epidemic of chaos and that kind of thing. And the way we try and battle that is we just you know, keep trying to catch bad guys and put them in prison. And we don't necessarily uh, give enough attention to making society better by making it, you know, providing opportunities for people so they don't have to resort to crime or making it so that's not an attractive uh, option, not just because of the penalties involved, but because of self-worth the when we want people to succeed in this world we want people to be happy we want them to strive for happiness uh, not just because we force them to but because they want that and eliminating a lot of the problems that we have can be done it's just a, a much bigger much uh, broader project when you look at it that way but when we have um, a lack of uh, not only resources, but dedicated, talented individuals who can uh, navigate the legal system appropriately, um, we have more and more doubt about how the system works effectively. And, you know, it's, a, it's kind of an old saying that if you don't have faith in the law, why follow it? You know, <laughs> and that's kind of true in the sense that you have to want to follow the law in order for the law to even work, right? I think about this a lot because we have laws about speeding, and I'm one of those nerds out there that I do my best to not not break speed limit laws. We kind of have an attitude about that that it's like, well, you're you're gonna speed. And if you get pulled over, you say, oops, my bad, give me my ticket, sorry. But people deliberately, flagrantly 
repeatedly violate that law all the time because they just don't take it that seriously. So why do we even have that law? If it's something that you know, everybody knows, people aren't necessarily going to pay all that much attention to. Now, you know, ask public safety officials, ask law enforcement officials, is it important to obey the speed limit? The answer is yes, of course. That's why it's there. People work hard to figure out what the speed limit should be based on a large number of factors, you know, safety being the primary one, but uh, people just ignore it. And the penalty is you pay some money. Some people have a lot of money and they don't care. <laughs> or, you know, we get calls all the time. Somebody got a six-point speeding ticket and they want us to get it reduced to a four-point or a three-point and those kinds of things. And yes, we do that kind of thing, but... It also just makes me think, you know, why are you calling somebody just to throw some more money at this process to make it potentially less? Why didn't you just not speed? Because <laughs> that's easy. You've got a speedometer. You can see how fast you're going. And assuming that you're not, um, you know, making that tough decision between uh, saving your own or someone else's life uh, where you might have to speed to get somewhere, you know, 30 seconds faster... <laughs> Um, why not follow that law? That's just kind of how I feel about it, is that it's there, it's clear, so follow it. Follow the law. Why Why is that so difficult? But, you know, we just kind of have this attitude, like, that's one of those laws that's there, you know, you, you know you're not supposed to speed, but people do all the time, and the more that we all do it, uh, and, you know, there's really no harsh consequence, um... You know, it just kind of encourages the ongoing violation of that. Now, that doesn't compare, of course, to things like murder, assault, theft, battery, those types of things. Um, but uh, if it's if it sort of fosters a, a slippery slope or not a, not a uniquely or I should say uh, universally applicable legal standard. It kind of muddies the waters on things. Well, anyway, we have to take a break. We'll be right back. So before the break, we were talking about, well, a variety of things, but we started off talking about attorney Jim Shellow and his uh, recent passing. I just want to quote here briefly about from his uh, obituary. Um, it describes how he became a defense lawyer. So after graduating from the University of Chicago in 1949, he stayed at University of Chicago, received a master's degree in psychology, and while there he dated fellow psychology student Gilda Bloom, and they got married in 1950. Mr. Shellow then worked as a systems engineer for Chance Voigt, a military airplane manufacturer, and also became a certified public accountant. He found all those experiences boring and unrewarding, so he went to law school, graduating from Marquette University in 1961. Mr. Shellow's first foray in a criminal defense came during his third year at Marquette when he read an article in Life magazine about a conspiracy trial involving Joseph Bonanno, Paul Castellano, and several other known Mafia members. The key piece of evidence on which they were convicted was a meeting the men held in upstate New York, but Mr. Shellow, in reading the news coverage and later the trial transcripts, noticed that prosecutors had presented evidence only of a meeting not that a conspiracy was planned during it. Convinced that the argument was misframed at trial, 
Shallow tried to convince the defense attorneys that they should push his argument on appeal. When his letter proved unpersuasive, he took a train to New York and asked for a meeting with one of the attorneys. It didn't go well. After hearing Shallow's spiel, the lawyer told him to enjoy the sights and have a safe trip back to Milwaukee. But Mr. Shallow persisted. He took a train to Cleveland to speak with Osmond Frankel, a civil rights lawyer working on the case. As the story goes, after an hour, Frankel was convinced. He immediately called the other attorneys and they changed the appellate brief to mirror Shallow's theory. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals agreed and all the convictions were overturned. So this is while he's still in law school. He he, uh, has a um, significant impact on the justice system. That's just the kind of person he was. He'd think outside the box. He would see something that he perceived as injustice and he would get involved. Jim also did a lot of pro bono work when it came to fighting for fair housing and anti-discrimination issues in the community that he lived in. So he devoted not only his time and talent, but also um, did things for free. And um, now trust me, if you wanted to hire him for a case, you would pay a lot of money. That's true. But he also definitely um, cared cared very much about the people that he would represent. And I've heard stories over the years where he would, um, you know, make house visits to people, um, going well into the night, strategizing, planning, getting involved in um, his dedication to that particular cause. So he will be missed, that's for sure. Um, A very, very important uh, icon in the legal community. So we'll miss him. But moving on, I wanted to uh, also just briefly mention something important that happened. Uh, Lots of important things happened, but recently there was a uh, lawsuit filed in Utah. And that is basically some petitioners against the Moab City Police Department. And this has to do with... um, the plaintiffs are the parents of Gabby Petito, and you probably remember hearing uh, about this case. Gabby was an aspiring van life travel influencer, um, but was brutally murdered by her abusive fiance and travel companion, Brian Laundrie. So this is a civil suit against the police and other authorities in Utah that failed to protect Gabby's life. You might think, okay, well, that sounds kind of weird because um, everyone knows that police have something called qualified immunity. Well, maybe you don't know that, but I'm telling you now. Qualified immunity means that unless someone does something basically uh, intentionally and far out of the scope of their duties by abusing that um, opportunity, then they are no longer protected by this immunity. But otherwise, immunity applies so that if an officer does something that's negligent or perhaps even reckless, we as a society don't expose um, people serving as, you know, in that public uh, employment as being exposed to potential financial liability. So it's an exception to the general rule, 
in our society that, you know, like it or not, there are financial consequences if someone doesn't follow a particular duty. We see it all the time in like car accident cases. So, you know, someone gets sued because they caused an accident. The defendant says, I want money as a result of that. And if they can demonstrate that there was a particular loss uh, by, by actual damages, you know, the loss of the car, could be loss of life, it could be um, medical bills, it could be all ki- loss of work, all kinds of things that amount to dollars and cents that the, defen- the plaintiff says, the defendant caused this harm to me and I want to be made whole again. That's the phrase we use, made whole. And it's kind of one of the tenets of our civil system, non-criminal system, that when someone has suffered a loss that can be... Um, evaluated in terms of money that you can seek to have that paid. That's why we have insurance, by the way, is because of that possibility uh, that insurance covers the liability that one may incur for acts that they engage in or fail to engage in, such as failing to stop at a stop sign and you end up causing an accident, um, etc. So the idea is that not only can actual damages be sought after, but also what we call punitive damages. Punitive damages are designed to discourage people in society from doing certain things that result in harm to others. So the there was a theory, a, a, a principle in law that um, has been in effect for many, 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 many years that says uh, if we had that same standard that applied to law enforcement, then everyone would sue the police all the time. And our system would be bogged down in trying to settle these types of disputes. So really as a band-aid to try and uh, insulate our system from repeated, uh, you know, hostile litigation, because after all, and the theory goes like this, if, if a police officer or sheriff's deputy or whomever is going to be performing the duty of investigating crime, uh, searching and seizing evidence, taking people into custody, dealing with people that may be armed and dangerous, um, and all of the other risks that are involved with that activity. We understand that things are unpredictable and go wrong, and that there is a natural adversarial relationship with the person who's being the subject of that criminal investigation or detention or seizure. So, in other words, naturally, someone's not going to like being prosecuted or arrested or chased by the police, right? I mean, that kind of makes sense. So, given the fact that so many things happen in the realm of police uh, activity that you have to make, they have to make um, immediate decisions not all of which are expected to be perfect. And because we're talking about things that happen uh, in the context of officers, you know, having to exercise those kinds of discretionary acts, and we, we provide training, we provide equipment, and all these other things. And it's just understood that there's a wide variety of different factors that can influence the outcome, and it's very unpredictable. Which is why 
generally society has a great deal of respect for what law enforcement officers do and what they face every day. But it's because of that that there's this, you know, sort of an exception carved out to the general rule of civil liability that an officer is not going to be subject to potential, um, you know, monetary damages if they do something wrong because it's within that sort of margin of error if you want to look at it that way. Well, what this lawsuit in Utah is is seeking to do is to take a situation where it's pretty clear that the police didn't follow their own rules, didn't follow their own protocol. And in the grand world of hypotheticals, the theory is that had they done so, um, Gabby Petito would not be dead now. And um, we'll get into more of the details about why that theory is being put forth when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back. So let me just um, recite here what the factual basis is for this lawsuit against the Moab uh, police. Um, the complaint states that roughly two weeks before Brian Laundrie murdered Gabby Petito, while the couple was visiting Moab, Utah, a witness saw Brian hit Gabby. The witness immediately called 911 to report the incident. Gabby contacted her family to tell them the couple had been fighting, that Brian had hit her, and that the police had been called. The family immediately responded by beginning to arrange for Gabby to fly home and to have her van shipped home to separate her from Brian. Moab police found the couple and investigated the reported domestic violence incident. Once the Moab police department stepped in, Gabby's family stepped back, believing that the situation was being appropriately handled and evaluated by competent authorities. The police investigation was deeply flawed. Despite the witness's report, the officers treated Brian as if he were the victim of domestic abuse rather than the perpetrator. In fact, the officers were directly questioned, que- did directly question, never directly questioned Brian about whether he hit Gabby or how she ended up with the s- scratches on her face. They failed to recognize or otherwise identify the obvious signs clearly indicating that Gabby was the victim of domestic abuse, including her assuming responsibility for the fight with Brian, even though she described Brian grabbing her face so violently that it scratched her cheeks and drew, drew blood. The officers egregiously misinterpreted Gabby's extreme emotional distress, seeing it as the cause of the domestic violence rather than its result. One officer in particular was fundamentally biased in his approach to the investigation, choosing to believe Gabby's abuser, ignoring evidence that Gabby was the victim, and intentionally looking for loopholes to get around the requirements of Utah law and its duty to protect Gabby. The Utah legislature has removed discretion from officers investigating domestic violence incidents. The law imposes protections against future harm, including an automatic protective order to ensure that the abuser and the victim remain separated. But here, the officers, based on their tragic failure to identify Brian as the abuser, coached Gabby to provide answers that the officers used to justify their decision not to enforce Utah law. So what we're talking about here is Utah has a law that most states have, which is when the police respond to a situation where the subject matter is some kind of domestic abuse, somebody has to be arrested, or at least there has to be something that separates the two, normally by arresting one person or the other, and then seeking to enforce, like in Wisconsin, we have our 72-hour no-contact provision that immediately goes into effect which the police have the authority 
to issue. So what they're saying here is that Utah has a law that says the police are not supposed to make decisions about, you know, evaluating who's the victim and who's the abuser. They're supposed to diffuse the situation and separate the people immediately and and do that without really taking sides. Now, naturally, if there's evidence that one person has been harmed, they will initiate that process usually by arresting the other person. I mean, they do have to make a decision, right? But they're not supposed to just uh, talk to them and then say, okay, uh, everything's good. You know, let us know if you need help in the future. For this very reason, I mean, that's why the legislature has put these laws into effect and that they treat domestic abuse situations differently than if they are just on the scene of some other kind of um, uh, investigation that isn't an ongoing potential danger. So just in recognition of the fact that uh, when police show up and talk to a couple, we know that it's often the case that if someone is afraid, a victim of abuse, and they're afraid of their abuser, they're going to say, no, uh, it didn't happen that way. It's my fault. Never mind. Please, please leave us alone. Because that person's scared of the, that they're going to be harmed more, right? That's the idea behind it. So many states, and we have a version of this in Wisconsin, that police are supposed to uh, use their authority to diffuse the situation immediately, as quickly as possible. And because of the fact that that didn't happen the way it's supposed to, and that the officers really were just looking for reasons not to arrest somebody, not to, you know, basically follow the law in Utah, this lawsuit claims that that was the proximate cause of uh, Gabby Petito's death because she was murdered shortly thereafter by Brian. Um, okay, this this is a tragic situation, but it's not necessarily unique or um, unprecedented because um, in the larger world of things, you cannot, no one has a crystal ball and no one can predict what would happen. And I kind of understand how difficult it is for an officer to be in that situation when, you know, you have, to, although there is this law that says the people have to be separated, if you have two people that are saying, yeah, it was no big deal, never mind, everything's fine, everything's cool, you would hesitate taking somebody into custody because then you have to worry about the liability for a wrongful arrest if, if that's something you're trying to avo avoid. But anyway, the grander. The bigger picture here is that this is an attempt to do change the law, is what it is. This is recognizing that the current state of the law is such that um, these officers are not going to be held responsible in any way. Now there are, you know, uh, in disciplinary things and employment-related things that can and I believe probably have happened in this case where an officer can have demerits or could get fired or put on administrative leave while there's an investigation and all those other things that happen that are supposed to be deterrents for um, not following the duty that they are sworn to uphold, you know, precisely. But what this suit is saying is that 
it is um, not enough. And that theoretically, if officers also had the risk of financial liability, that they would not have, again, theoretically, <laughs> um, failed to protect Gabby Petito. Now, that assumes a lot. Um, and I don't know that it really would have that effect. I'm, I'm not sure how I feel entirely about this whole issue. I do know that qualified immunity is something that unfortunately ends up being a panacea for all types of police um, mishandling of cases. And I do believe that a lack of, um, you know, potential liability there, financially speaking, kind of sends the message that you don't have to be as careful as we would like people to be, as we would hope people to be. And then the fact that there is a, a lack of, or the fact that there is this qualified immunity out there, kind of adds a layer of complacency to everything that's done. Yes, we have, you know, career-related penalties. We have, you know, um, things that can happen as far as discipline goes. But if the overall approach is that it's no one's really going to be at fault financially anyway, uh, it kind of spreads through, you know, the attitude throughout the entire agency. Like, well, yeah, that wouldn't that wasn't exactly the right way to do it. But, you know, next time, make sure you do it better. Uh, okay, go, go back, go back to your work job, you know, that kind of thing. Um, which bothers me in the sense that if it if it leads to a culture of acceptance of a lesser standard, then I have a problem with that. On the other hand, you really do have to think about how there is no perfect world where perfect decisions are made every single time, especially given the dynamics of a situation like this. And honestly, I get so many cases where I wish the police didn't jump to some conclusion and then end up having a myopic view of what had happened. And I think that the law that requires police to arrest somebody probably assumes too much that the police are able to discern, you know, who's at fault right there on the spot in these very confusing, sometimes um, emotionally charged situations. I mean, you get right here, you get two people basically begging the police not to arrest anyone, that everything's okay. And the lawsuit's saying that that wasn't reasonable because of what the police saw, heard, and had, you know, physical evidence of scratches being on her face. Um, but, you know, again, it's a difficult decision. And police are faced with those types of decisions every single day. And it's hard, hard to say that you know, anyone's ever going to be perfect in those things. Like I said before, you can't, can't predict the future. No one would have known that this person was going to murder, um, you know, his girlfriend until after it happened, unfortunately. So we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. Um, hope you've been enjoying this discussion about civil liability um, as it relates to, you know, stuff that bad people do. <laughs> And I mean the guy that killed Gabby, Brian, this Brian guy. That's really a tragic thing. But, you know, I think we've learned by now that 
strange things happen, and when you try to reverse engineer what caused something, it's very difficult to say. And that kind of leads me to my next subject, which is, you know, we just saw the um, sentencing occur in the Darrell Brooks case. And, of course, we talked on the show as the trial was occurring about all the drama in the courtroom and how Judge Darrow... Um, handled herself, which was remarkable. In fact, there's talk, I don't know if it's coming from her camp, but a lot of people are saying that Judge Jennifer Doro should have a Supreme Court run because she really, you know, established herself as uh, being able to handle an extremely difficult situation. And that that is true. I mean, she did a remarkable job trying to not let... Mr. Brooks derail the trial. And it raises some interesting issues because you know what I'm going to say. It's that people have a right to counsel for a reason. And one of them is that you shouldn't be compelled to be a witness against yourself. But maybe the more obvious reason is that there are rules and procedures that have to be followed. And if you're not a lawyer and you don't know what those rules and procedures are, you're not supposed to be given any more leeway than you would if you were a lawyer. You know what I mean? So, you know, the manner in which evidence is introduced, what is the rule that relates to relevant evidence or things which are prejudicial to one side or the other? How do the hearsay rules work? What are the exceptions? What is proper questioning? What is improper questioning? What is the right time and form for an objection? Going deeper than that, investigating the case, identifying witnesses, subpoenaing them, filing pretrial motions, identifying legal challenges that are based on precedent in the law, in the case law that needs to be studied for years and ongoing uh, research that happens every time there is a new development in the law, which is every day. Uh, new things happen, and it's a lawyer's responsibility who practices in that area to be not only fluent, but completely um, knowledgeable of all of the legal standards and how they apply. Knowing when you can make an argument uh, and have it be properly considered in order to advance the cause of a, your client is critical. And I know the law is a lot more complicated now than it was when the Sixth Amendment was drafted, but the basic idea behind it is that there were so many abuses of how um, the legal system had been manipulated by the colonial um, government authorities, the British authorities, to basically render colonists... um, subject to a state of basically martial law with very limited rights. Um, You know, that's really why we had the Revolutionary War, because British citizens that don't have the rights of normal English, you know, (laughs) continental um, uh, citizens, because of the fact that we're simply colonists, was seen as a pretty dramatic abuse of rights, and they were done for reasons, by the way. You know, the reason why 
a lot of the rights that would normally apply if we had been in England were suspended was because this was basically a colonization of a, of a completely different continent where it was perceived that the control of people needed to be more tightly managed. Because um, even though they're British subjects, they are, you know, born and generations and generations of people were, you know, I guess from the English point of view, at risk of having too much independence. I guess they were right, weren't they? Um, but part of that is that, you know, a, a legal proceeding that can result in someone's loss of liberty um, should not be a sham, should not be something that w those in the position of authority can squelch or put down um, people for whatever reason and not have it built into the process that they have the right to representation. So add to that a new, uh, several layers of how the law works, and it's true that there are cases. When I say cases, I mean published decisions out there that go all the way up to the Supreme Court that deal with the issue of self-representation. So yes, you do have a right to be represented by counsel, but conversely, you have the right to represent yourself if you truly want to. It's nearly always, no, I'm not going to say nearly always, I'm going to say always, always, a bad idea. Um, and you can kind of see how that played out here in this trial. Um, it was painful to watch for a variety of reasons. First of all, an obvious, most first and foremost, the tragedy of what had happened. And the fact that the trial never was about what happened. It was all this other nonsense that Mr. Brooks was trying to inject into the equation. So not only did he succeed in getting himself convicted of everything, but he also managed to get himself the maximum penalty for everything. Um, so if you don't know, he's sentenced to six consecutive life sentences, and on top of that, another 700-something years. So really could not have been a much worse outcome for him. And perhaps he realized that. Some people would say, I understand that what I did was terribly wrong, and I would like to apologize and accept the consequences, which I know are going to be bad. Or you might make a circus out of it, um, just because you've got nothing to lose. And I'm pretty sure that's part of what happened here. But the case law says that if a judge finds that somebody is um, sincere in their belief that they want to represent themselves, and if they are competent enough, meaning uh, can read and write, um, understands how the process works, etc., the judge has to let somebody represent him or herself if those findings are, are apparent. Because... There have been cases where someone said, I want to represent myself, and the judge said, no, I'm not going to let you. You're going to have a lawyer. And then the conviction can be reversed because of the judge denying that right and forcing someone not to have that opportunity to represent themselves. Now, frankly, I wouldn't have a problem if the rule was that you simply cannot represent yourself, except that we have to consider the fact that... We have a system whereby if you're not 
absolutely completely um, assetless. If you don't, if you don't qualify for public defender representation, you have to pay for representation like you have to pay for everything else. And if you don't have the money, you're kind of out of luck there, um, because a lot of people have jobs, a lot of people have some kind of income, but they don't have enough spare spare money. They were just barely making ends meet. That's a lot of people barely making ends meet and if you had to come up with the funds to have a private lawyer you you just simply can't now i i believe this was a completely different situation where mr brooks just really wanted to do things his way and in his estimation that was to be you know <laughs> very aggressive and disruptive and to get thrown out of the courtroom repeatedly throughout the process i think that you know he thought that was the right approach it wasn't, but um, just so you know, if the judge had said, I'm not going to let you represent yourself, that's probably something that would have been reversed on appeal. And sometimes people will, you know, make that motion just to see if the judge says, no, you can't represent yourself because they know that there's case law out there that says that's improper. So if you're wondering, you know, why did Judge Doro allow this to happen she had to and what that meant was it was an extraordinarily difficult process for all involved and frankly you know just added to the pain and suffering that that occurred as a result of the tragic events that resulted in loss of life and this guy has really um you know left a mark in a bad way on our society but We'll see what happens with Judge Doro's future if she does run for Supreme Court. Who knows? Maybe, but we'll keep you updated. All right, that's all the time we have this week, so hope you've enjoyed the show. Please tune in next week, as you can, every single week, Saturday mornings from 8 to 9, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This is Legal Defense. Have a great weekend.